Good morning. Today's reading is taken from Esther's chapters, chapters 5 to 7, which can be found on page 398 of your church Bibles. <clears throat> on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in his court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is, it, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pool set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the Book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered. Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse, and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. 
Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. <coughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching up to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, guys. That was great. Um, I just realized, this is very silly, but... Um, the prayer meeting is not this coming week, but the week after. <laughs> so come the week after. Um, let's pray that God will speak to us through these words. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace and amazing hand over all things. And as we come uh, to this text, we pray that we'll be amazed at how you are alive and active through ordinary people's actions and thoughts Lord, that we might trust you completely and we might be people who live courageously in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Often great stories have these great turning points uh, uh, when the heroes of the stories do something and things all turn around. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite movies, it's when Simba faces his past right, and his uncle Scar, and when Anna jumps in front and he, she freezes all over, and Aslan dies on the altar in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Everything turns around afterwards. In Pride Rock, darkness and death recede from that land. In, in Frozen, the world literally melts, and the curse is lifted in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
And it's all because the heroes took a courageous step and confronted the enemy. It did something that was heroic. And in some ways, that's what the book of Esther has been building towards all these chapters. As we've seen, Esther isn't a perfect character, and Mordecai isn't either, but Mordecai reminds her. Chapter 4, verse 14. Who knows but that you have come to, to your royal position for such a time as this. Last chapter, we remember seeing Esther answering that call. Right? She decides to go to the king, and she says to herself, if I die, I die. So the moment comes, and after three days of fasting, Esther puts on a royal robe, literally puts on, on her royalty, and, and she's going to go to confront the king and plead the case of, for Jewish people. You know, if you think about it, it was a very precarious moment uh, because she's going to have to confront the king about his prime minister, the one that he promoted, the one that he trusts the most, the one who has unlimited access to the king. And not only that, she's going to confront him about a decision that he was complicit Right? He signed off on this decision to kill all the Jews in Persian Empire. So, and, and you know that when he, she appears, anyone who appears to the king without the summon of the king could be killed right away. But Esther went, knowing all of, this, all of the risk. And so she stands in front of the king, but we don't know exactly why, but we're told that the king is pleased he extends the golden scepter to her, excusing her. And he asks, what's your request? Why have you come? I'll give you even up to the half of my kingdom. It seems to me that the queen's courage now is flagging at this point because she doesn't say anything that's on her mind right away. Right? What she does is to say, could you come to a banquet that I will prepare for you and bring Haman with you? She delays asking the king. It seems like it would be there in the second banquet, right? There where she would tell. I mean, in the first banquet, when the banquet happens, she would tell him. But that's not what happens. When the banquet happens, the king asks her again. But she defers again. Come again to another banquet to, that I'll prepare tomorrow and bring Haman with you. Then I'll answer the king's question, she said in chapter 5, verse 8. This might have left the, the, the king puzzled, but Haman felt great, right? It seemed like he, it confirmed every, the, his royal position, right? His position as the king's favorite. It's the queen who prepared a private banquet for the king, and it's, it's, her. Uh, she invited, it's her who invited ha uh, Haman to come and join him. So Haman must have felt that he was the guy uh, for the, the king and the queen, so she's, he's so happy that he comes home and brags, it, uh, brags about it to his uh, friends and his wife, Zeresh. But on that way back home uh, from the first banquet, he sees Mordecai. He ruins all the fun. He doesn't rise. He doesn't show any deference uh, to him. He doesn't show any fear of Mordecai. 
and he just gets really mad and says, actually, he can't be happy until this guy is dead. And when he tells his wife and friends about it, they advise him, why don't you set up a pole 23 meters high, 75 feet high, presumably so that uh, he could tell everybody, this is what will happen to a person who defies me and impale him on it. So that's what he decides to do. He erects this pole, and he's going to go to the king the next day in the banquet to tell him, to ask him to kill Haman. But this is what happens that very night. The king couldn't sleep and asked the book of Chronicles, the, the book that records all the things uh, uh, going on, on of, of his kingdom. And there he hears about Mordecai again who rescued him back in chapter 2 from an assassination plot. And he asked, what has been done for Mordecai? Has anything been done to honor him? He realizes nothing had been done. So next morning, he gets up and he starts wondering, what should I do for Mordecai, this Jew, who has helped me, who has saved me from assassination? And that's when Haman walks in to ask him for his permission to kill Mordecai. And the king asks, what should be done for, a ma- for the man who, who the king delights to honor? Haman is vain, and so he can't imagine possibility, the possibility that this would be for somebody else. So he asked for, his, uh, for the highest honor, to dress him in royal robe of the king and has him ride uh, uh, the, the, the king's horse with the emblem on it. And he says, why don't you take one of the princes, the noblest person, to actually take him as a, a, a parade him around all of the city of Susa, proclaiming this is what is to be done uh, to, for the man the king delights to honor. That's what, king, uh, that's what Haman craved, recognition and honor and status equal to the king. And so the king says, that's a great idea. Get the robe, get the horse, but you take Mordecai the Jew around all of the city and say, this is what will be done to the man who, whom the king delights to honor. So Haman, is, that's what he did for Mordecai. And the story gets better afterwards. Haman then goes to the second banquet, uh, where the king asked Esther again, what's your petition? What uh, is your request? And the queen finally gets her courage up. In chapter 7, verse 3, she stood in front of the king and asked, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For the first time, Esther identifies herself as a Jew. And she says, uh, uh, she, she tells the king uh, that there's a plot to kill her people. And she says to the king that the plot to kill her people is a plot to kill her. And the king, whose love for, him, uh, for Esther has been inflamed recently, and just promised three times that he would give up to half of his kingdom, asked who would do such a terrible thing, forgetting completely that he signed off on this. And Esther finally sees the chance. She answered, an adversary, an, an enemy, the vile Haman. We're told that the king got up enraged and left to the palace garden. 
I wonder if there he himself was uh, mad kind of at himself. I mean, he was somewhat complicit in this whole thing, right? He was the one who signed off on it. He was the one who elevated Haman to be the prime minister. He was the one who probably took the bribe that Haman offered and signed off on killing uh, all these people without knowing that it would endanger his queen. I wonder whether he thought how he could get out of it without losing any face. And if there was a dilemma like that, that was solved immediately when he came back into the room because historian Herodotus records about Persian Empire that actually uh, that, that no one, no man, even in the presence of others, is supposed to approach seven steps within king's harem. But here, in, in panic, Haman had thrown himself uh, in front of the queen right? When, 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 he, when, uh, when he should have left the room, when king left the room. But just as Haman is throwing himself in front of the queen, that's when the king walks in. And the king returned and saw him. Xerxes does not hesitate. Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And the guards, of course, take that to be the cue, covers his face, drags him out, and somebody suggested you should uh, you should impale him on the pole that he set up in front of his house, the very pole that he erected for Mordecai. So he's killed there. When the time came, the queen stood in front of the king, risked her life by appearing in front of him and accused Haman, king's most trusted advisor of treachery. And she identifies herself as a Jew and pleads the king for the safety of her people. And God had decided, and God had indeed put Esther for a, such a time as that. And God used her to rescue all these people. And as we've asked last week, the question is, will we be courageous as, as Esther? Wherever God has put us, in whatever situation that God has put us in. But let me also ask, what was the turning point of the story? What was the turning point of the story? Was it really when Esther confronted the king? And yes, God does use Esther's decision to be courageous, to turn, to save uh, God's people, to accomplish his will. But at the same time, not really. No, because the writer of Esther all through this narrative has carefully shown that it's not Esther who's in charge. It's not anyone who's in charge. But God has been planning this whole thing. God's invisible hand was behind it all. And we saw this in many, many details. God put Esther, right? Esther's improbable rise to be the queen of Persia. Was that just a coincidence? God had put Mordecai uh, in, in place where he hears the assassination plot and actually uh, foils this whole thing. God's not mentioned there, but it was there. God was behind Haman in his throwing the lot in determining the date of the annihilation. God was behind uh, in our chapters uh, as well. For example, if the king doesn't look favorably upon Esther, the whole plot is foiled. Uh, Haman sets up the pole to kill Mordecai, the very pole upon which he himself will be killed. Isn't that God's way of saying, God, justice will be done. God will show justice. How about Haman, uh, the, the, the king coming in, just as Haman is throwing himself upon Esther, giving the king a convenient way to save face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, knows exactly what to do. 
by mentioning the poor to the king. None of this is a coincidence, and there are just too many of them. Haman's wife had recognized this before in the middle of the story in chapter 6, verse 13, when she tells him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Of course, that foresight would have been helpful one day earlier <laughs> when she was advising him to set up the poll. Um, but never mind. You see, she recognizes at some point that it's not the, it can't be the Jewish people, right? Because Jewish people were people who were in exile without any power. She recognized that there's something behind the Jewish people. The God of the Jews would not be thwarted, could not be stopped. And actually, this whole story, the way that it's written, reinforces that it's God who has been in control, God who has been orchestrating this whole thing. As you can see, this is uh, uh, from Bible Project. It's a great site. You should go and check it out. But as you can see, this book of Esther, the entire story is uh, written in a sandwich form, uh, technically called chiasm. And you'll see the, the first chap three chapters, um, the, the, the king of Persia, uh, Sorry, the uh, first couple chapters, the king of Persia is um, honored. His, 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 uh, uh, his kingdom, his power is emphasized. Uh, sorry. His power is emphasized. At the last here, in chapters 9 through 10, here it describes Mordecai's greatness. Um, and then the middle section parallels. Each, each one has these sections that parallel each other until it reaches the turning point right in the middle. So, that, uh, so, so for example, Haman is elevated in chapter 3, and at the end of chapter 8, Mordecai is elevated. Every single part of the beginning story has a corresponding section towards the end. Maybe you can see it better in this way. But here, look at the very center where Esther throws the party in chapter 5, the first banquet. And Esther then goes to uh, and throws a party, the second banquet, in chapter 7, the second banquet where she confronts Haman, the king, and the king. You see, that's not the center of the story. The turning point isn't when Esther confronts the king. The turning point of the story is actually the the, right in the middle, in chapter 6, 1 through 3, when the king cannot sleep. Sleepless night of the king, the one who isn't named anywhere in this book. God is not mentioned in book of Esther, if you are joining us. Um, I, I, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther at all, but he's in absolute control over the whole thing, and he's been orchestrating the rescue of God's people from behind. God is in control, and that's what the Esther's writer wants you to know. Even as you can't see him, he is in control, and he's rescuing God's people. In fact, in Septuagint, uh, the early translation of the Hebrew version uh, to, into Greek makes it explicit. In chapter 6, verse 1 of Septuagint, the writer says, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. The Lord was in control. In the story, everybody else thinks that they're in control. The king thinks that he's in control. But did you notice that King Xerxes never does anything without the advice of other people? He always goes to, for advice for other, from other people. Haman thinks that he's in charge. He flatters and he lies. He bribes to get what he wants. 
But ultimately, with all the power of the Persian Empire at his disposal, what happens to him? His plan is foiled over one night, over one sleepless night of the king. All the things that he had planned to execute turns around, actually, and is used against him. Even Esther is not ultimately in control. It's not Esther's plea that saves the Jewish people. God brought the sleepless night. God allowed, uh, uh, orchestrated the king to hear the, mess, uh, the word of uh, what Mordecai has done. God has been orchestrating this whole thing. God is in control through the ordinary events of ordinary people. You know, we know that God can do great things, miraculous things. And when we see miraculous things, we know, oh, there is God. Right? He's done it before. God has rescued his people through Exodus, through parting of the Red Sea, through doing plagues and, 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 and boils and, and, and all sorts of things. We know that God is there. But the question is, is he involved today? Is he involved in our ordinary life? It, when we don't see God doing spectacular things, and can he accomplish his purpose? Can he orchestrate the whole thing to bring about his will? When he's not mentioned at all, the answer that Esther gives is yes. Yes, he can and he does. Friends, God is at work through the ordinary events of our lives. Tomorrow you'll return to school and tomorrow you'll return to your work and family or whatever it is. God's there orchestrating everything. He's behind every decision that you make. The, the, the emails that you write, the tests that you take, the spreadsheets that you create, the meetings that you have. God is there. God is sovereign God who is orchestrating the whole world in his sovereign plan. Even when you think that he's not there, when you are tempted to doubt, I don't know, when you, tempt, uh, when you are tempted to doubt God's presence. Hey, Carmen uh, t- talked about how her, her daughter died about six months ago and how she affirmed that actually God has been there all throughout that, that, that process and all uh, with her even now. In our times of suffering and illness, I think suffering and illness often is kind of like this, right? Because you suffer alone. You feel like nobody knows what's going on with you. You feel like you're alone um, when you suffer. And Mordecai must have felt like that. When he saw Haman Haman rise to, uh, to be the prime minister, when the decree to kill all the Jews went out, he must have said, why? Is God still around? Is God here in Persia? Friends, God's in the midst of the suffering. God's in the midst of whatever you are going through. There are many reasons why God would allow his people to suffer, to go through illness. But suffering and illness are not signs of God's absence. So go through suffering. Go through difficulty, difficulties uh, with your, uh, of life with faith in ways that will surprise the world. Yeah. Trevor's here. But Sarah's going through uh, this whole thing. She had a major surgery a couple weeks back. Um, She's going through chemo right now. But, you know, she says, if I die, I die. I go to heaven. If I live, I'll live for Christ. That's that's a a person who's going through suffering with the eyes of faith. If we really trust that God is working through all things, we'll be able to praise God in times of up, in the, through our, for our successes and for our apparent failures. Things that are good and things that we think are bad. 
trusting that God's there. He's working out his will, his good purpose through all of it. Friends, live like Esther. Live courageously, trusting him in all things, seeking his will, doing his bidding in your school, in your work, wherever God has placed you because God might have placed you to live courageously for such a time as this. He's in charge. And you know, the turning point comes. Things change. Things change. The turning point for the Jewish people in Persia was when King Xerxes went, couldn't sleep. Their lot was turned around and God rescued his people. And we'll see how this, this thing is turned completely around next week. You know, and this happens through history too. D-Day was an allied forces landed in Normandy. It changed the course of Second World War. Hong Kong being handed over to China in 1997 was a huge turning point in our city's history. But the turning point, the turning point of all of history has already come 2,000 years ago. You know, ever since, if you think about the human history, ever since the days of Adam and Eve, we lived in suffering, in, in, in the curse, under the curse of sin and death. Its curse pervaded every part of our lives. Every bit of our experience, human experience, is tinged with sin and death. But 2,000 years ago, a sleepless night happened. And only a few people noticed it. Those who, weren't, uh, who were there didn't realize its, its significance. Jesus was born. Jesus was born. And 30 years later... He died on the cross. He was impaled on a tree like wicked Haman. And on the third day, he rose again. And you see, that was the turning point of the entire history of the humankind. We know that God will bring about his ultimate goodness and ultimate, ultimate will. Because he rose again and because of him, all those who come to him, all those who count themselves as God's people, as Christians, people of Christ, all those who trust him as their Lord and Savior have received the Spirit or get a taste of life as it's meant to, meant to be. And because of him, there will be a great reversal. We'll see how everything that happened here on earth, everything that happened to us, we'll see how this whole earth, the whole thing will have accomplished God's good purpose. And we'll see the proud humbled. We'll see the wicked punished. And for those who trust Jesus, death will be no more. Mourning will be turned into dancing. All things will be made right and God's people will rejoice and live their lives as it was, as always meant to be. Friends, the world right now, as it seems, is not the way it is. God is here. God reigns. He's running the world. The turning point of history has taken place. I hope you'll know that. I hope you'll trust him that he will carry out his good purpose and live courageously each day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that even as the world says you're not there, you are. Lord, even as the world suffers and, 
accuses uh, you of absence, of negligence. Lord, we know that you are accomplishing your good purpose. Lord, we know that because you've sent your son. Um, you've, you've made this great turning point in history and has shown us what the future will be like. Lord, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to know that you are there in every day of our lives and help us to live courageously, live boldly as your people that you have placed in Hong Kong. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.